Praise the Lord. Thank Jesus. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Good evening. We, the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, Herb Becker President, Tony Carroll, Vice President, present our guest speaker for the month of April the 16th, 1982. Dr. Fred Trinkline is an astronomer, educator, author, and science reporter. We'll share what he has discovered about the accuracy of the Bible. Dr. Trinkline is the author of a widely used high school astronomy text, Modern Space Science. And we just can't wait to hear this marvelous testimony. So we'll praise the Lord and give thanks for this great man of God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise him. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for the privilege of calling you our Heavenly Father. Amen, Lord. God, we thank you from the depths of our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you, Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you, we thank you for the resurrection power that we feel in our midst even this very moment. Jesus. We thank you that he has ascended, 
He's at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for each and every one of us. Oh, Jesus. And truly, it is no secret what you can do, Lord. Father, what you've done for others, you can do for each one here this night. Lord, those who have penned their requests on these papers. Lord, before the ink was dry, before they even wrote, you saw their heart, you saw the need. You heard the heart cry. Hallelujah. Oh, we thank you that we have a high priest in heaven who is touched with every feeling of our infirmities. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has made sin for us, that we might become sinless as he is. We thank you for his blood that washes away every sin, every guilt, every stain. We thank you that what money cannot do, what man's intellect cannot do, your love can and has already done for us all that we need. We praise you tonight. Father, we praise you tonight. Jesus, we adore you tonight. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your faithfulness tonight. We worship you. We thank you, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts for everything that you're planning to do for us this evening. We thank you because we need not leave here the way we came in. We thank you for healing bodies. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, for touching minds. We thank you, Lord, for relieving oppression and depression and for bringing victory, Lord, in the lives of those who might seem defeated. We thank you, O oh God, for peace of mind. Hallelujah. We thank you for all that we have need of is supplied in you tonight. Thank you for providing our needs, Lord. Thank you for providing homes. Thank you, Jesus, for providing jobs. Thank you, Lord, for meeting every need in every family. God, we just love you. We love you tonight because you first loved us. Oh, how can we thank you? Hallelujah. 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 How can we praise you enough, Lord? Folks, we invite you to just push your chairs back. Relax. You men, if you'd like to loosen your ties, I'm going to allow Tony to introduce our speaker of the evening. Uh, before I introduce the speaker, how many of you really enjoyed those two testimonies by those two lovely ladies? Weren't they beautiful? <laughs> you know, one thing about Christianity, you don't have to put on. You try to put on, you're only kidding yourself. God doesn't need any flattery. Isn't that so? Amen. So when uh, our dear sister Margaret mentioned that uh, she's unaccustomed to giving testimonies, well, she meant it in the vein that some of us practice testimonies in our churches. You know, we make it a formal thing. It's part of the format. But it's beautiful. Always have something good to say about what the Lord has done for you. And he's done so much for us that really you don't know where to start. So we really appreciated that testimony, Sister Margaret. And now this time we're going to be able to hear from your husband. I have here a, a, a whole list of things concerning Dr. Frederick Trinkline. But on the top of the list, it's not mentioned here, brother in Christ. That's number one. <laughs> That's what I like most of all. Dean of faculty, teacher of physics and religion, 
Long Island Lutheran High School, adjunct professor of astronomy, co-author of modern physics, co-author of modern space science, author of God of Science, which is on the book table in the back there. We advise you to take a copy of that home with you tonight. Leader of solar eclipse expeditions, various parts of the world. You already met his wife, Margaret. We didn't meet his children, but he's here tonight, and we trust the Lord is going to bless his ministry to us tonight. Let's welcome Dr. Trinkline to our midst. Amen. Thank you very much, Tony. The program that was sent out said that the topic for this evening's talk is going to be evolution versus specific creation. And when I came in, what do you mean by specific creation? And we agreed that specific creation means the word of God. So I'd like to call the talk this evening, Science and the Word of God. We were sitting here during dinner, and Mr. Becker and I were amazed at how quiet it is in here. And I want to assure you that for a teacher, and Tony, you can sympathize with this, that's a real busman's holiday to have it real quiet for a teacher. And I want to thank you for this opportunity to have a relaxing time this evening with fellow Christians. To give you some idea of what teaching is like today, in case you've been out of school too long, I just returned a physics test the other day, which was not exactly all A's, as you might imagine. And in exasperation, I said, I want all the dumbbells in this room to get up. Now, that's something you shouldn't do. You shouldn't lose your cool, but it was out. Nobody got up. Finally, a young man got to his feet in the back of the room, and in amazement, I said, do you mean that you admit that you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, sir, but I hate to see you standing there alone. I was going to use his name, but he said if I use his name, I have to give him extra credit. <laughs> Before we start on the topic this evening, I'd like to bow our heads in prayer and ask, Dear Lord, grant us your Holy Spirit this evening so that the things we discuss and learn will be useful to us in our own personal faith and as we go forth to witness to your power and love in the universe, in your Son's name, Amen. You know, when I went to school as a youngster in grade school already, and it was in a Christian school, my well-meaning teachers told me, you want to be careful about studying science, because in science, often you learn things that are going to weaken your faith. Now, if you know anything about child psychology, you know that that's not the sort of thing you tell a youngster if that's what you do not want him to do. In fact, in my own classes, if I have a book I definitely want everybody to read, I will tell them now, this is a book, and you hold it up and say, I do not want you to read this book. Don't anybody dare read this, especially page 95, which is very bad. Well, you go to the library later, and the book is checked out, it's worn out, page 95 is torn out, reproduced, Everybody has read it. Well, it worked that way with me, too. Why were these people telling me I shouldn't study science? Why would God put something in the universe that he does not want me to know? It didn't make sense. They were well-meaning enough. 
But I found as I went on and studied science, partly because I had an interest and of course partly because somebody said you shouldn't do that, there's something bad there and you have a curiosity and wonder what is it that's so bad, I found it was just the opposite. That in the study of science I learned of the power and love of God in a very definite way, in a way that you can't really learn any other way. We have found this to be true particularly as we've gone around the world looking at total solar eclipses. There is no more dramatic and startling proof that God the Creator is a powerful and loving God than to see it get totally dark at midday. Unfortunately you have to go where it occurs. The last time it happened here was in 1925 and it will not happen again until 2024. But every 15 months or so, somewhere in the world, the sun goes dark in the daytime and you stand there helplessly thinking about what it is that man is bragging about when he says he is the master of his own soul. It is a very, very dramatic thing. And even in the midst of Siberia, where we were last summer on the Mongolian border, when the eclipse was over, an American got to the microphone where the Russians had just counted down the eclipse and said on the loudspeaker, we want to thank Almighty God for this eclipse. And then as an afterthought, he said, we want to thank the Soviet government for allowing us to come here to look at it. No, the study of science, you see, is not something that weakens faith. It's something that makes you all the more aware of the fact that all we can do is marvel at the power of our Creator. Now, to give you some example of where science is at today, or what we might call the state of the art in science, I want to tell you about three things in the field of science that indicate what we know about the universe today and what we don't know and wish we knew. One example from each of three different sciences. First, from my very favorite field, the field of astronomy, is the question of how big, how really large is this universe we live in? We're talking now about using telescopes in the observatories of the world that can see out to a distance of 18 billion light years. Or as Dr. Carl Sagan would say, 18 billion light years on his program Cosmos on television. How large is that? We haven't the vaguest way of imagining what that really is like. And yet, in spite of this piece of information that the universe is supposedly so large that it takes 18 billion years for the light to get here from the most distant star, every true astronomer will agree we don't really know whether it's that large. We don't know. We try to imagine and we try to interpret what the light means that comes from those stars, but we don't know. And the first thing you learn when you really study science is that science is not really a collection of facts at all. Science is a quest. It's a search. But it never arrives at absolute conclusions. Even now, this very year particularly, 
Scientists are challenging the theory that the universe is 18 billion light years in radius. An astronomer by the name of Dr. Halton Arp in California has come up with a contrary theory that says the universe is much, much smaller than that and that the evidence on which we're basing such a large universe can be interpreted in many other ways. One of these ways, he says, is that the light that comes here from those distant stars simply gets tired and looks like it came from that long a distance, but other things have happened to it along the way, and it may not be as large as we have previously thought. So it's large, but we don't know how large. The mind of man cannot answer that question. A second field is the field of physics and chemistry, the area of how small things are. What is everything made of? When I went to high school, it was protons, neutrons, and electrons. But now there are dozens and dozens and even hundreds of particles that were not known at that time. And even now we're talking about whether the federal government should continue to spend money on a machine out on Long Island that will probe the universe even down farther to see if everything in turn is made of a smaller particle. There's even a name for it. It's called the quark. A man made that word up, quark. It was not in the dictionary years ago, at least not in the English one. It was in the German dictionary. If you go to Germany, you can buy it in the grocery store. Quark is like cottage cheese. It's kind of interesting what the whole world might be made of. But we're looking for quarks. We've already spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a machine to look for quarks. And yet we're not sure they're there. And if we do find them, is that the end? I was at a physics symposium at Stony Brook not long ago where Dr. Victor Weisskopf of MIT was asked the question, Dr. Weisskopf, do you think that the quark is the end? And he said, in all sincerity, I honestly hope so, he said, because I'd like to get the feeling that we're getting somewhere before I die. But you see, we don't know. We never will know whether that is the last particle. I have a theory of my own as a Christian that the Lord doesn't want to disappoint us when we spend $400 million on a new machine, so he'll make some more particles. <laughs> he'll make sub-quarks and say, here, boys, you are. I don't want to disappoint you. And if we have a telescope that'll look farther than 18 billion light years, he'll make some more stars. I call it the democracy of the universe theory. And it's absolutely impossible, of course, to refute that theory because how can you prove what was there before, before you saw it? I haven't published that yet, but maybe in the next edition we'll put that in. But we'll talk a little about theories later and what makes a theory and where does the Bible come in. One other example from where we are at in science, and that's the science of biology, of the human body and of life. I had an opportunity to interview the Nobel Prize winner Sir John Eccles from Switzerland, who won his Nobel Prize for explaining the way in which messages get from one nerve to another. And Sir John Eccles got up in front of a meeting of Nobel Prize winners, and he said that it is now possible to show in his laboratory that it is not necessary to use the brain in order to think a thought. 
Now, I could have told him that from my experience in class right along. <laughs> but what Sir John Eccles was saying is that in his laboratory, by wiring people's heads and recording their brain waves, the so-called alpha, beta, and theta waves, he was able to show that a person can initiate a thought or an action even without any brain waves being active. And he calls this controversy of where thoughts really come from the greatest frontier of science today, what he calls the brain-mind debate. The brain is the physical thing in your skull. The mind, Sir John Eccles says, is you. I asked him later, and he's a devout Christian, and he said what he means is, it is your soul. You see, to Sir John Eccles as a scientist, it has become obvious that there is more to a human being than physical parts, even brain waves. It is not possible to prove, he said to those Nobel Prize people, that a person who gets up in the morning should be able to remember who he was when he went to bed the night before. There is no physical explanation for memory. And he said he doesn't think there ever will be. Scientists who are really in the top of their profession know that science is a glorious manifestation of the work of the Creator but it has limits beyond which it cannot go. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to ask a great many scientists around the world that direct question. What is your belief about the limits of science and about the role of God? It came about in a very wonderful way, in a way that really showed me that the Lord works in mysterious ways to perform his work. As a teacher, I had always wanted to know whether I'm telling my students the real story in science. Who am I as a teacher to say I speak for the community of science? I wanted to go into the world and talk to the people who had won the Nobel Prize and who had achieved the top of their field in other respects. What do you really believe about God? To make a long story short, a man came to my house a wealthy attorney, and said, I hear you want to go into the world to talk to the scientists. Here's the money. Go and do it. I'm setting up a bank account for you. Go where you have to. And so for a whole semester, we went to 13 countries. I wrote 100 letters to the Nobel winners in science and asked each one only one question. Can I come and talk to you about God? And to my great surprise, 50% of those people wrote back and said, yes, come and talk to me. That is far greater a percentage than the average for a questionnaire of any kind, leave alone a questionnaire on religion. The result of that survey are on this little, in this little book that was mentioned before this on the table. I don't want to go through the entire contents. I want to tell you only a few very powerful witnesses that I heard in making those interviews. First, I want to tell you that I was completely surprised, completely surprised because of what I had been told as a youngster 
about the great scarcity of atheists among the scientists of the world. Of all the people I interviewed, only two, only two said, and they said, I'm not sure they were, that they did not believe in God. I think this is a larger percentage of believers than in almost any other profession. I wish similar surveys would be made in other professions to see if this is true. I vividly recall those two interviews. One was in Norway, one was in Switzerland. The man in Norway said, I'm an atheist and I'm an unhappy person. That was a startling thing to hear. I said, why are you unhappy? He said, because you as a Christian, and I hadn't even told him I was a Christian, he assumed that. He said, you're a Christian, you can go home tonight, you can pray, you can leave things in God's hands and peacefully go to sleep. I had never thought of it that way before. I said, well, what do you do? He said, I have to worry about everything on my own. He said, if I would hear that my wife and family had died in some terrible tragedy, I couldn't take it. I couldn't handle it on my own. I haven't got anything else. And I said, why don't you believe? And he made a very profound remark. He said, because I can't. Faith is a gift of God, is what I learned in that interview. We pray for that man, Dr. Rittberg in Oslo, that God would give him the faith he so badly needs and is searching for. The other one was a professor of geology in Geneva. His wife was sitting there while we were talking, and I had the feeling the entire time we were talking that she only was listening and was hoping that I would say something that would shake her husband out of his cynicism. And what he was telling me was that he had intellectually searched in science and in philosophy and in psychology courses, and he found no God. He had not left his heart open for God. He wanted to make the search. He wanted to find the answers. He was not ready to have God supply them. What a contrast it was to listen to other people equally renowned, if not more so, in the field of science, give humble witness to their faith in Christ. One of them was Dr. Hubert Ellier at Princeton University, considered generally to be the most successful and important professor of chemistry in the world. The State Department sends him to innumerable countries to show other universities in the world how to teach chemistry. He took me into his laboratory at Princeton and he said, oh, how chemistry reinforces my faith in Jesus Christ. And what a thrill it is to teach a Sunday school class here at Princeton and to teach them not only the truths of the gospel, but all of scripture. And just to be different, he said, instead of having my students memorize the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, in my class, they have to memorize it from Revelation to Genesis, just to show that they know the Bibles backwards and forwards. Another scientist, this time at Georgia Tech, spent way more time than we had scheduled. And I said, our interview was supposed to be over a half hour ago. He said, yes, I've got the vice president waiting 
but I've never had so much fun as in this interview talking about religion and about God. And I want to tell you, he said, that recently I went to one of our meetings here on campus where the campus chaplain took us to a local church where they were discussing the Christian religion. And I wanted to see what our students were doing in churches today. And to my great horror, he said, the pastor of that church was showing films from a downtown art theater to the students in order to attract them to the meeting. And I told the pastor, what in the world are you doing? Where, he, said, he asked him, is your witness to the gospel? What are you teaching them about Jesus Christ? And the pastor said, well, the young people have a hard time buying that. They don't show up for those meetings, so we show them X-rated movies to get them here. And this president of the university told the pastor, Pastor, I think you have done a good job of selling Christianity down the river. That's the kind of witness, interview after interview, I heard from people who were not known in their publicity, in the press and in their books, for being devout believers. They haven't had the opportunity, you see. They were not supposed to mix their religion somehow in this American system with their science. Dr. Werner von Braun, the rocket expert, a devout Christian, said, the two greatest forces of the 20th century are science and faith. Now what this man was saying, and what I'd like to go on to next, is that even though science can show us the marvelous work of the Creator, the great power, and even the love of God for putting into motion such wonderful laws of science, that study of science with its limitations cannot give us the answers that are the most important in our lives. Science, one man told me, it happened to be Dr. Walter Bratton who invented the transistor at Bell Telephone Laboratories. He said, science can only tell us how things are. Science, he said, cannot tell why they are. This depends on faith. This only the Word of God can give us. Not so long ago at MIT, 500 scientists and theologians from around the world met at the invitation of the scientists to discuss the question, science and faith. And as we sat there listening, one scientist after the other from places around the world said, we need the input of the Christian gospel if this world is to survive, if we're going to answer the problems that now face us. Science does not have a conscience. Scientists do. The scientist needs God. One man put it this way, he said, science can take a knife and make it sharper but it is up to the scientist to decide whether he's going to cut bread with the knife or another person's throat. Science is not good or evil. Scientists are. 
and only the word of God can make the difference. Now as an example of that, and because the topic for this evening was specifically evolution and creation, which is very much in the news today, I'd like to use that controversy as an example of what I've been saying. Evolution in its first forms, the theory, when it was first called that, came at around the time of Charles Darwin. He didn't originate the idea, but he wrote it up in greater detail than it had been done before that time. Charles Darwin was a member of the Church of England. He had no desire to come up with something that would shake anyone's faith. He was a scientist. He took a trip on a ship, and he collected specimens of things and tried to make sense out of them. And he came up with a book, several books, The Origin of Species Among Them, in which he said that it was his idea that perhaps one species of life gradually changes into another species through a technique known as the survival of the fittest. Now all this was a scientific idea. He didn't say whether he thought that this refuted the idea of a creator, that this had taken his faith away. He just said by studying the various forms of life that he saw in the Galapagos Islands and other places in the world, he saw a similarity between species, and that by arranging them in a certain way, perhaps they can change one into the other over a long period of time. Well, a hundred years later, when a lot of people think that the theory of Darwinian evolution has been universally accepted in scientific circles, we find the opposite is happening. One scientist after the other is finding flaws in the theory of Darwinian survival of the fittest. As though the Lord had done this for tonight's meeting, I picked up Life magazine for April, and I strongly urge you to get it, because on the front cover is the title of an article on the inside called, Was Darwin Wrong? about evolution. And to my great surprise, the article goes on to say in several closely printed pages that Darwin was wrong about evolution. This is an excerpt of a new book. The book is called The Giraffe, Where Darwin Went Wrong. <laughs> I think about that for a minute. And it goes on to show that scientists around the world are bringing up some valid objections to what is being taught to a lot of students in our schools today, and which many of them are being taught is the only acceptable explanation for the origin of species. Listen to this quotation. Professor Nielsen of Lund University in Sweden, after studying the subject for 40 years, summed up his conclusions this way. It is not even possible to make a caricature of evolution out of paleobiological facts. The fossil material is now so complete that the lack of transitional series cannot be explained by the scarcity of the material. The deficiencies are real. They will never be filled. What he is saying 
And this is the first scientific reason why Darwin was wrong. There are no missing links. I was at a debate at Princeton that went for three hours on a Saturday night where a leading evolutionist debated a creationist. And the creationist asked the evolutionist, are there fossils of missing links? And the man said, no. No museum on earth has fossils of missing links. And the question was, why not? And his amazing answer was, because we haven't looked long enough yet. Now this scientist says we will never find the missing links. The second scientific objection to evolution that the article brings out is that to go from one species to the next requires a great many very fortunate coincidental mutations. In other words, to go from one body that does not have an eye like we have in our heads to a species that has an eye like this is simply preposterously unlikely. And the quotation that Life magazine uses on this one is from Ernst Kine, who won the Nobel Prize for research into penicillin in 1970. And he says, to postulate that the development and survival of the fittest is entirely a consequence of chance mutation seems to me a hypothesis based on no evidence and irreconcilable with the facts. It is interesting that Darwin himself said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And later he wrote to a friend, to this day, the human eye makes me shudder. What he means is that there is simply no way in which mutation could have produced the human eye. A half an eye won't do. You can have an animal with a little bit of an eye. It won't survive. God made the eye. There is a third reason that scientists are objecting to the theory of Darwinian evolution. And that is, and it's a fancy word in physics, entropy. Entropy is the scientific law that everything runs down. Irrefutable. You build a house, you don't touch it for 10 years, don't touch it for one year. It'll be worse off than it was the year before. Every day, maybe for some of us it takes two or three days, we're in a little worse shape than we were before. As a biologist would say, you start dying the moment you're born. Everything runs down from a higher order to a lower order. Everything falls into disuse. This is called entropy. The evolutionary theory says, if left to its own devices, nature will go from less organized species to more organized ones. These are completely contradictory ideas. Now what does a person say who believes in Darwinian evolution?
I've asked them. One of them said, to my great amazement, that entropy, that everything is running down, is really only a small cycle in the opposite law. Did you get that? If you're going this way, it's just a small segment of the larger law that you're going the other way. Black is really just a little form of white. Another evolutionist told me that the reason entropy is true is because no outside energy is supplied to it. But the earth isn't like that, he said. The earth receives energy from the sun. So therefore, entropy doesn't have to be true if a whale is to turn into a cow or vice versa, which is the sequence, by the way. Now, I'm not trying to say that the people who believe in Darwinian evolution are unchristian. There are a lot of Christians who believe that God made the universe in this way. But it is becoming increasingly clear to scientists in this country and abroad that it's not true. Other theories are being proposed to take its place. Some of them are really very amazing. One theory that was proposed recently by a scientist, by the, well, Goldschmidt lived a while ago, but it's being resurrected. It's called the theory of hopeful monsters. A hopeful monster is a species of life that wasn't supposed to happen, but it did, and there we have it. Did you know, by the way, and we just took my wife and I a tour through the New York Natural History Museum, very knowledgeable guide, and she told us in one exhibit, in a case there, do you see anything in the corner of the case that's unusual? And one of the people in the group said, yes, I recognize that. It's a cockroach. <laughs> now, to our surprise, the cockroach was in the exhibit, not on the glass on the outside. And she said, because the cockroach has not evolved for 100 million years. It has been made that way and is still that way because a cockroach is so efficient. It cannot be improved upon. Now we find that humorous, and yet, if you find the fossil of a cockroach in a piece of rock that's 100 million years old and it looks just like the cockroach that is here today, you have got to make modifications to your theory of evolution, or you can't sleep at night. Another one is the oyster. Absolutely hasn't changed in all that time. Another theory is the theory of catastrophism. Catastrophism means that there were several great upheavals that changed everything in ways that we could not imagine before. This is a far cry from natural selection and a slow upward gradation of species. It means, boom, all of a sudden there was something new. One of the leading proponents of catastrophism is Dr. Stephen Gould of Harvard. You may have seen him on the front cover of Time magazine last month or maybe even have seen him on television on the NOVA program. He has come up with a new theory that he proposed at a meeting of evolutionists at the Field Museum in Chicago, in which he said, 
let's start looking for missing links and slow changes from one kind into another. Let's start believing and teaching in, quote, little bursts of creation. Praise the Lord, little bursts of creation. In other words, God is showing us in science that things can happen the way he wants them to without involving all kinds of preposterous explanations. Now again, I emphasize that science is not in the business of teaching religion. You cannot make a, Christ, make a person a Christian by showing him the stars or an eclipse. You can make them very humble. I've seen them fall on their knees, but you cannot make them a Christian. Only the word of God can bring the truth of Christ's salvation. Whether a person believes in bursts of creation, in the slow ascendance of species, or whatever the theory is, even the theory that God makes extra stars when we make bigger telescopes. This is not Christianity. This is only humility and honesty. There are still some roadblocks to the theories of evolution that I don't want to take more time to explain, but that more and more scientists are becoming aware of. And what we are learning in this country now that they've known in other countries for a long time is that you shouldn't pass laws telling a teacher what he can teach in a classroom. Turntable for side number two. Turntable for side number two. Why do we need a law? The students know that there are other explanations and theories. They want to know what you think about them. I was at a conference recently where all the science teachers of Nassau and Suffolk County gathered and listened to a speaker on the recent trial in Arkansas. And a woman in the back got up and said, would you please tell me what books I can refer my students to who ask me about the theory of creationism? And the man said, to my utter amazement, we don't believe in putting books like that into the library. And I raised my hand and said, sir, are you engaging in book banning? And then he was stumped. He said, I want to think that over for a while. I have no difficulty teaching what the different theories are on the college level, whether it's a tax-supported college or not, there somehow we don't get excited. But somehow Satan has managed to put a stranglehold on the laws that govern elementary and secondary education so that you can't mention God there. I got a phone call from the superintendent of instruction of Texas and he said we have your astronomy text here and we like it but we can't use it in Texas. Why not? Because you mentioned God in it. I said, what's wrong with God in Texas? <laughs> and he said, it's teaching a religion. I said, I'm not teaching a religion, I'm quoting Isaac Newton. I'm saying that Newton said that the greatest discovery he ever made was Jesus Christ. Well, he said, you have to paraphrase that out. Thank God we don't have to paraphrase God out as Christians. And let's see whether we can't allow prayer 
and the mention of the limits of science and the truths that the Bible teaches to be mentioned to our children. There are powerful enemies, ladies and gentlemen, at work that would like to overthrow the word of God in this world. We saw some of them in Russia last summer, where it is illegal to have Bible discussions, where it is illegal to have baptism, except if it's approved by the state at a certain age, where Christians were hiding in the American embassy for fear of their lives for believing what they did. Then we saw their God in Red Square, people standing in line for three hours to see a corpse. Lenin, who's lying in there now since 1924 with ice water running through him so that people can worship him. But the people aren't all buying it. The few times that we saw people smiling in that nation, one of them was when Mrs. Trinkline gave a Bible to one of the workers in a hotel. Not left it because they told us it would end up in the black market, but handed it to the person, and there was a smile. Atheistic communism is a powerful enemy of the word of God, but it's not the most insidious. There are others. There is another one called secular humanism. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the document called Humanist Manifesto II. The first one was written in the 1930s. Now it has been rewritten, and it contains statements like this, and I want to quote them exactly for, lest someone say I'm paraphrasing them. We believe, you see a humanist who does not believe in religion says, we believe. Every human being has to believe something. I remember talking to Dr. Margaret Mead during an eclipse expedition in the Pacific. And I asked her, Dr. Mead, what do you believe about God? And this was less than a year before she died. She said, I am a post-agnostic. I said, what's that? A post-agnostic is a person who used to be an agnostic, but who is now a Christian. A humanist says, we believe that faith in a prayer-hearing God who is assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them is an unproved and outmoded faith. Salvationism, which is based on mere affirmation, is harmful and diverts people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. Then the manifesto goes on to list the things that a humanist believes a human being should have the right to do. Among these are sexual experimentation, suicide, and euthanasia. This document is signed by some of the leading scientists and philosophers of our country, including Isaac Asimov and B.F. Skinner the Harvard psychologist who has had untold influence in our educational system. That's the second enemy of the gospel and of the word of God. The final one, I think, is even more subtle. And that is the enemy 
of false religion. And when I say false religion, maybe I should call it false scholarliness. I was at a convention recently of church members, a thousand people, at what was called a Holy Spirit Conference. What a wonderful experience it was to see that many Christians join hands and voices in praising the Lord. And yet, in one of the meetings I attended, a woman got up and said to the speaker, who was a professor of theology, why is it that she was told recently at a Sunday school convention that we should no longer teach children the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said, well, there is with me today another professor who is an authority on the Bible. He'll answer that for you. And this other man got up and said, because today theologians no longer accept the Bible as the word of God. A religion convention, mind you. We no longer, he said, worship a paper pope. The woman was absolutely stunned. I told the speaker that I had just come from a meeting at MIT where scientists asked the Christian church for leadership. And now you're denying the very word of God. That's our enemy. Atheism in, commu in communist Russia, even humanism, that's recognizable. But people who would take our heritage of God's inspired holy word are the most insidious and the most successful in this country today because they are masquerading as religious people. Instead, the Bible teaches us other kinds of power. There's no power shortage in the Bible. There's no outage, no brownout. The word power is in the Bible over and over. The power of God the Creator. Ephesians 3.20 says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. What a powerful remark. Immeasurably more than we can imagine even in science. And then the power of our Savior who, when he healed the man who was palsied, was met with the remark, how can this man forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That's the basis of the miracles we've been hearing about, of healing of the body and of mind. I want to close with a little scientific miracle. One chapter I have in the book is, Do Scientists Believe in Miracles? Well, I heard about one not so long ago that tops all the stories the scientists told me. It concerns a young college student who came to a university and was told that there is a professor of chemistry there who likes to give a lecture around Thanksgiving time that will destroy people's faith in God. And so just before they leave on vacation, he takes a beaker and holds it over the cement floor in his classroom, and he says, now, when I drop this beaker, what is going to happen? No one says a word. They all know it's going to break. And he says, I want to tell you something. You can pray all you want to, to any God you want to pray to, and it won't do you any good. 
the beaker is still going to break. Well, this young freshman who came in said, I heard that Dr. Smith gives this lecture against God every year. I'm going to be in his class next semester, and I want you to pray that I have the strength to witness to my savior, to that professor. The lecture came. The man said, is there anyone here who wants to pray that this beaker won't break? And the young man got up and said, yes, sir, I would like to. And the professor made fun of him and said, well, now, why don't we all fold our hands while this young man prays that this beaker won't break and that the laws of science will be set aside. And the young man said, Lord Jesus, thank you for hearing me. Now please don't let this beaker break. Smith dropped that beaker, and instead of going straight to the ground, it hit his knee and then his shoe and rolled over. That young man went out on a limb. But one thing people are reporting from that university, Smith does not give that lecture anymore. <laughs> That's the third kind of power the Holy Bible, the Word of God, has for us. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You know, God has a conservation law, too, just like the ones in science, and it concerns our faith. It's a very short one. The law goes like this. Use it or lose it. And harking back to World War II, I don't know how many are able to do that besides me, there was a song I would like to slightly change in closing, Praise the Lord and Pass the Examination. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. Thank you.